morning. The scripture today will be from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, which you can follow along on the screen. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, if you brought a Bible with you, feel free to open to John chapter 1, where we're going to be this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can pull it up on your phone or just sort of listen along uh, with people around you. Um, and also in your bulletin, there's a little sermon outline. You can pull that out too, and that might help you follow along. So why are you here today? Why are you here today? Sometimes we get asked that question if we go to the doctor or we go to see a therapist. So what brings you in today? Why are you here today? And, you know, we might ask that question sometimes when we come to church. Why am I here today? What is it that I'm wanting or longing for from God? You know, sometimes the answer is I'm here out of habit. I'm here out of, uh, out of character. I, I don't really long for anything, but I'm here just to open myself to God, and that's a good answer. Sometimes the answer is historical. Like, I'm here because this is what my family's always done, or my, my parents brought me to Christ when I was young. Sometimes there's something more personal there's, or something more uh, that we're aware of. Like, I, God, I'm coming to you because I, I, I want to hear from you. I'm making a major life decision, or I'm trying to figure out where to go, and I, God, I want your direction in my life. Sometimes we're here for some mixture of all those reasons or a lot of other ones. You know in today's passage, we're going to look at some of the reasons that the first disciples of Jesus decided to follow him, what they found compelling about him. And in their example, we're going to see something for each of us as well. The, the passage here in John 1 has sort of three call stories, three times that people decide to follow Jesus. The first one are Andrew and John, and they follow Jesus because they want to dwell with him. They want to be invited in and included. The second one is about uh, Simon, and he follows Jesus as he gets renamed and given a new purpose and a new mission in life. And the last one is Nathaniel, and that's the one I, I want to spend the most time on. He chooses to follow Jesus because he's known and he's loved, both in his best moments and in his worst. I hope that in each of these three, you'll see some part of yourself, or maybe in all of them, you'll see yourself. And in so doing, you'll choose to follow Jesus as well. All right, let's get into the passage here in John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1, 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This John that we read about here is the one we usually call John the Baptist. He's the cousin of Jesus who is the forerunner, the one sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. He's been preaching in the wilderness that someone's going to come after him who's going to take away the sins of the nation and of the world. And he calls that the Lamb of God, the one who's 
sent in order to be the sacrifice that the people need. And he sees Jesus, and he's, we're picking the, it up at this story at this point, but this has happened before. He said, the Lamb of God, this is who it is. This is who I've been pointing to. Jesus, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. If you want to know more about John the Baptist, Pastor Tim gave a, a great sermon on him about three weeks ago. And you might remember the, the phrase that Tim had us repeat a couple times. John's sort of summary phrase of his ministry is, I am not the Christ. That's not my role. I'm not here to save, but I'm here to point you to the one who is. And here he is. And so John, in a moment of humility and of example for all of us, points his disciples and says, that's the person you should really be following. And they do. The two disciples in verse 37 hear him say this, and they follow Jesus. These two disciples, we'll find out later, are named Andrew and John. And they they, I just, to me, this is kind of a funny scene. They're sort of falling around. They're like walking behind Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? Which is a, a biblical way of saying, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want? Why are you following me? On the surface, this sounds sort of like a, a, an aggressive question or maybe just a, like a flippant question. Like, do you want fries with that? <laughs> but, it, but it's a hard question to answer, right? What are you seeking? What are you longing for? What are you really wanting from following me? I wonder how we would answer that question if we were Andrew and John. What are you, what are you looking for from me? What are you hoping to find? If you've ever had a chance to go to a spiritual director, which is someone who's trained to help you think through what it means to know and experience God, Pastor Justin's a licensed spiritual director, um, they'll often ask you this question. Where are your longings? What are you hoping to find what are you hoping to see in God or experience of God? It's a really good question, and it's a really annoying one because I never know how to answer it. Like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I thought you would tell me that. Right? But Jesus confronts them with this hard question. What are you longing for? What are you seeking? And this is their answer. They say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So do you think they answered the question? What do you think? What are you longing for? Rabbi, where are you staying? Is that an answer? Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I probably uh, earlier in this week would have said, oh no, they're just trying to change the topic. But I actually think that is what they're longing for, right? They, they want to see where Jesus is dwelling and abiding and staying, and they want to be invited in to go with him. Earlier in John 1 and John 1, 14, uh, the narrator, uh, John says, the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. Jesus has come, and He has dwelt with us. And that's what they're longing for. Will we be invited in? Will we be able to stay with you? Will we be able to be close to you, God? This longing to be invited in or to be included is a very deep one in the human experience, right? We all, no one wants to feel excluded. No one wants to feel left out. We especially don't want to feel left out by someone that we consider important. And no one's more important than God. We all want to be invited in and thought of and included. And um, John, in the book of Revelation, says that this offer to be invited in isn't just for these two disciples, but they're for all of us as Christians and for all of us as people throughout the ages. In, verse, in Revelation 3.20, uh, there's this famous verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This invitation to, to come inside, to come to dwell with Jesus, is extended to Andrew and John, but it's extended to all of us throughout the ages. 
They want to be invited in. They want to be seen. And there's this phrase that Jesus uses in verse 39. He says to them, come and you will see. Where are you staying? Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I love this phrase, come and see. I think it's really important and really helpful for us today. Come and see. This is how I hope our church operates when it comes to matters of doubt and faith. Come and see. Right? You, you can come and belong, and you can be invited in and included even before you know whether you believe it or not. I hope that our church never has like a, like a hard edge, like you have to meet this mold to be able to belong. I love what Pastor Tim leads in the fall each year, Christianity Explored. It's a place where people can come and belong and process whether they want to choose to follow Jesus or not. If you're in the process still of deciding whether you believe in God or you believe in the Bible or any of that, I hope you find our church to be a really welcoming and come and see sort of place. It's not just come and come, right? It's come and see that there's something objectively good in Jesus to look at. Sometimes our culture, our current generation, really loves the the come part, like just come as you are. But there's also the see part, that, that Jesus is objectively good to behold and that he's a real person to either accept or deny. Sadly, unfortunately, um, Jesus' followers aren't like this all the time. You know, Jesus says, come and see. I have nothing to hide. I'm not threatened by your questions, your doubts. I'm not like the Wizard of Oz who has something to sort of be cloaked in secrecy. You can come close to me and find that I am really all that you're hoping for and longing for. But unfortunately, Jesus' followers don't always embrace such a come and see mentality. I've been a pastor long enough to have people tell me, you know, I used to go to church, but then I had some questions from my youth pastor, and he, he made fun of me, and I was, I was out. Or I, I used to believe in God, and then I had some like things that really bothered me, and I tried to express them to my parents, and my parents said, don't ask questions like that. You're going to get in trouble. And so I was out. Unfortunately, we don't always represent Jesus well in this. And if that's been your experience, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, because that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who says, come and see. I have nothing to hide. Um, well, one of these first two disciples, uh, Andrew, puts Jesus' example into practice, and he decides to say, come and see to someone close to him. He invites his brother Simon to come and see Jesus as well. This is in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Andrew, who will eventually become one of the inner disciples of Jesus, one of the apostles, um, is known for this habit of bringing people to Jesus. We see it throughout the Gospels that he's the one who brings people to know Jesus. And he starts with the person most important in his life, his brother Simon. And he says, we have found it. We have found the thing we're longing for. The, the Greek word for we have found it is where we get our, our English expression eureka, right? This thing that is of immense value to us. Eureka, I found gold. I'm now a 49er. Sorry, I had to work the 49er. All right, all right. Admittedly, that was strained. Admittedly, that was pretty strained reference, but I'll take it. Right. It's good to know you guys are listening. Um, and, and he brings this person, Simon, who's so important to him, and he, he risks bringing him to this new person, Jesus, who's so important to him, and says, you have to meet him. And so verse 42, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, 
You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right, what is going on? Like, there's this moment of vulnerability. Simon comes to Jesus. Andrew's like, you've got to meet this guy. He's incredible. You'll love him. And what does he do? Like, you have a new name now. Like, <laughs> who does that when they meet someone? Um, and maybe more importantly, like, why? Why would you do that? Like, did Jesus know a Simon growing up and, like, didn't like him? Like, that kid picked his nose, and he's like, I don't want any more Simons in my life. You have a new name now. Um, no, no, obviously nothing like that. Uh, Cephas, which is the Aramaic term, and Peter is the Greek term, both are, literally mean rock. And um, when I say mean, I don't mean in the sense that we kind of remember at some point in our life what our name means. Like, no, no, it's, it's just the word rock. So if you were to translate it literally, it would just be, you are named Simon, you are now named rock. So Dwayne the Rock Johnson, biblical name, that you didn't know that. Um, now, those of you guys who know, <laughs> I feel like you're enjoying the jokes too much, Jason. <laughs> Um, now, you guys who, who know the Gospels a little bit, how does Peter live into the name of rock? Uh, we'll, we'll say fitfully, like sometimes, sometimes, sometimes not, right? So why does Jesus call him this thing that he's not fully? Why, why does he call him? Like, this is not if you met someone who was seven feet tall to be like, oh, I'm going to name you tall guy, right? Like, it's not a description of reality, it's a de declaration of what Jesus is going to do in and through Peter. It's not what he sees in him now. It's what he's going to create in him in the future. This isn't even just like a glass half full, glass half empty thing. This is a, I'm going to create a new glass in and through you for the benefit of others. Man, I, I really think this is practical and helpful for all of us. Because if we were there and we were in Jesus' shoes, how many of us would look at Peter and say, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to fail me when I need you the most. You're going to fall asleep in Gethsemane when I need you to stand guard. You're going to take matters into your own hands when I don't want you to. I'm going to have to call you Satan at one point, right, and tell you to stand behind me because what you want is not what I want. I'm going to call you Sandy from now on <laughs> because you're more like sand than a rock. Prove me wrong down the line, right? But Jesus doesn't do that, right? Right? He, he, it's not that he focuses on the good, it's that he creates what is good in, in a, a vision for Peter in the future. Let me ask you who are parents. Like, if you were to describe how you parent, is it more rock or sandy? Like, what, would you, what would your kids say that you speak into their life more? Uh, those of you guys who are a spouse, uh, how would your spouse say you talk about what's possible in their life? Do, do you speak more words of encouragement of what's possible or shame of how they've let you down? Uh, those of you guys who are friend or in a life group, like wh what does your life group do for one another in terms of speaking about what God could work in their life? This creates a new mission, a new purpose for Peter, right? And it's not just for Peter, right? This isn't just a historical thing. In fact, in Revelation, which John also wrote, in Revelation 2.17, he describes this time where Jesus says, behold, I, let me read it. I, I don't have this verse memorized. I will give each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. This is a cryptic sort of poetic scene as so much of Revelation is, but the idea that's coming across in Revelation is that all Christians are going to have this experience in some sense that Peter is having, where Jesus speaks into our lives and creates something new 
something good, not based on our shame or our failure, but what he works in us and through us and for us. And it changes Simon's life, and it changes our life as well. All right, the last one, Nathaniel. I'm really excited to, to get to. Nathaniel experiences this come and see in a way that brings awe and wonder. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we have this third time that Jesus decides to call two disciples at a time to himself. And this time he says to Philip, right? First it was Andrew and John. Then we have Andrew and Simon. And now we have Philip and Nathaniel. And Philip sees how well it works with Andrew and tries it himself. And he says, here, Nathaniel, come, come. I found the one that the law and the prophets write about. I have found the one that we are waiting for. It worked really well with Andrew and Simon, right? So now he tries evangelism himself. He tries to reach out to his friend and bring him to Jesus. How would you explain something that you're really passionate about? Have you ever tried this to try to explain to someone what you're really excited about and you can't really figure out how to put it into words well? Look, let me ask you, how would you explain Disneyland to someone? So there's this place. It's really expensive. Tons of people go there. It's like a city for a mouse, kind of. Um, and it's like his whole kingdom, I think. It's like a magical kingdom. And you just stand in line all day. Um, but it's really fun. It's really fun. And it's for kids, but it's mostly grown-ups. And, um, and then what would you say? You're losing people. You just, you just, you just got to come and see, right? You just you got to come and see. But instead of being met with enthusiasm and excitement, Philip has this experience, I think a lot of us dread when it comes to evangelism, where he's met with ridicule and dismissal instead. Philip's hoping that this thing that he's passionate about, his new faith, you know, he doesn't know much about Jesus yet, but he's excited. He says, I, I, we found him. The law and the prophets write about him. And Nathaniel, who I think, is, I think is probably from our generation, I think he's a millennial based on his response, um, <laughs> says, well, actually, like, well, actually, um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So what's, what's this objection? So, well, actually, if you read Micah, you would know that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, right? Well, actually, if you know the prophets, you know that there's no, spe- there's no prophet from Nazareth. Well, actually, don't you know Nazareth is the, the lowest rung on the social ladder here in Galilee? Um, Na- Nathaniel has poorly informed opinions, but they are tightly held, again, like, like so many of us in this generation. And it's got to be crushing in one level for Philip. Nathaniel's response is rooted in uh, some, some questions that there are answers for. I mean, ultimately, we'll find out, though Philip doesn't know this at the time, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, like Micah says, that Nazareth actually does have a place in the Old Testament of speaking about uh, how there's going to be a branch of David that comes from there. But Philip doesn't know any of that yet, and so he's left kind of in this vulnerable spot that maybe you've been in with evangelism in the past, where you try to share your faith with someone, and they say, well, I read on the internet this about science and faith, or I read this on the internet about uh, the, the Gnostic Gospels, and you just feel like, I don't know, Bob didn't cover that in the sermon. Um, <laughs> can I go away now? <laughs> but Philip, in a, a really helpful example for all of us, doesn't just go away. He says, come and see. Nathaniel, you have questions, come and see. 
And what does Nathanael see when he comes to Jesus, to, to Nathanael's credit, right? Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, well, let me, let me read the rest of it here. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. This is such a fascinating passage to me for for a lot of reasons. Nathaniel comes to Jesus with a certain set of expectations, and he comes to see Jesus. But first, Jesus says, I saw you first. Before you came to see me, I had already seen you. I had already observed you. I already knew you. And what does he say about him? An Israelite in whom there is no deceit, right? This is a, a phrase essentially saying, you are a, a, a clear-headed and straight, uh, straight-minded person. Now, what did we just say Nathaniel said about Jesus, right? Like, when he was under the fig tree, presumably talking to Philip, what was his view on who Jesus was? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This guy's a fake, right? Now, if I was Jesus, again, so good that I'm not, and I'm having this moment of confrontation with Nathaniel. You know what I say? Hey, I saw what you said. I, saw, I know what you said. You said nothing good can come out of Nazareth, right? Say it to my face. <laughs> say, it, say it to my face while I fly 50 feet in the air, right? <laughs> um, right that's, how, that's probably how I would have responded. Um, not good. Don't do that. Uh, but Jesus, in gentleness and in kindness, doesn't focus on the flaws of Nathaniel, or the failures of Nathaniel, or the worst parts of Nathaniel, and says, but I saw you at your best under the fig tree. I wonder if, if obviously this is, this, this is not going to happen, but if you were to walk out of here this morning and go about your day, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then you were to meet Jesus, and he were, he were to say, I saw you on Tuesday, would your heart soar, or would it sink? Would your assumption be that, that in that moment, God would say, I saw you and there was no deceit in you. I, I delighted in you. Or would it be, I saw you and I caught you. Right? For Nathaniel, there's this moment, even though he has been caught, but God delights in him. Jesus delights in him. I, I can see your heart that no one else can see. This is really what we long for, right? That we would be seen and delighted in at the same time. This is what it means to fall in love, that, that someone would see us and love us and cherish us. You know, sometimes we're seen but unloved, and that's rejection, right? When someone says, I know the real you, and it disgusts me, right? That's, oh, that's awful. But the other one can be pretty bad too, right? Where someone says, oh, I think you're great. And you say, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. This is hollow. This is, you just follow me on Instagram, but that's not the real me, right? It's not who I am. And then sometimes we're neither seen nor loved at all, and we just feel lonely and rejected. But to be seen and loved at the same time, gosh, that's, that's what humans long for. Whether it's when we're young from our parents or from our friends or from a lover or from uh, a community, to be seen and loved is what the human person's made for, and it causes us to soar when it happens. The problem is it fades with time those feelings of romance and, and, and feeling of being seen and loved by another seem to fade over time because ultimately the person who sees us is just another person. They can't completely see us. They can't completely know us. And their love isn't as powerful as God's is. 
But to be seen and loved by someone like Jesus would cause our heart to soar. If, if we can feel love like that, I mean, how much, how much would that change us? We, we saw this principle at work a little bit this week after everything with Kobe Bryant. Um, you may have seen on, on Instagram or elsewhere, people posted a lot of uh, selfies they'd taken with Kobe over the years or videos that Kobe had sent them. A lot of people wanted to share their stories of how Kobe had known them or they had known Kobe. And, and I get why. He was a sort of gravitational force in L.A. But what was at work was people saying, I was known even just a little bit by this great person in our culture. And, I, you know, I like, I like Kobe. I like, I like him. But he's just a man, right? To be delighted in and to be known this much by someone finite and to have that change us so much, man, how much more to be fully known, to be seen completely by the God of the universe. And Nathaniel has that experience, and so it changes him. He explodes in admiration and praise for Jesus in response to this. By the way, we don't get an answer in this passage about the Nazareth thing or the Bethlehem thing at all, because ultimately that's not what this is about. Nathaniel answers him in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel has been seen and known and loved at his best. And Jesus says, that's all it took? Look at verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you now believe? you will see greater things than these. So what do you think the greater things are? Is it the feeding of the 5,000? Is it the transfiguration? Is it the resurrection? This is what Jesus says in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, wait, you lost me. Like, Wait, when does that? Like, I don't... (laughs) Let me look through John again. When do the angels ascend and descend and the heavens open? Like, what is he talking about? Jesus is talking about uh, Genesis 28. It's a scene from the Old Testament. It's called Jacob's Ladder. And if that doesn't make it any more clear, let me explain. Um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Abraham becomes the father of what will ultimately become the people of God. And his grandson, he has two grandsons, um, Jacob and Esau. Esau is supposed to be the son of promise. And Jacob, his brother, his little brother, is conniving and manipulative and a liar and mean, and everything goes bad for him. And by chapter 28, Jacob has been sent into exile by his father. He's been hunted by his brother, and he's waiting to die in the wilderness. And it says in, in uh, Genesis 28 that Jacob rests that night with his head on a stone. Things could not get worse for Jacob. And he has a dream. And that, in that dream, he sees the heavens open and angels ascend and descend on him, like on a ladder. And Jacob wakes up from this weird dream and says, God's here. I didn't think God would be in this place. And literally at that point, what Jacob probably meant was, I didn't think God could be out here in the wilderness, right? Like they had a, usually a regional view of God. I, couldn't, I didn't think that God would be out here in this desolate place. But over time, what that passage comes to, to mean is, I didn't think God could be here with someone who is so cursed and abandoned someone who has done so much wrong and so much who doesn't, who didn't honor God, I didn't know that God would still love and cherish and delight in someone like this, someone like me. And ultimately, if you know the rest of that story, Jacob will have his, he himself will receive a new name from God. He'll be renamed Israel. He'll have 12 sons. Those will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And ultimately, from one of those sons will come Jesus himself. But the reason Jesus mentions this Jacob's ladder part is uh, what that story encapsulates in in chapter 28 is the idea that God comes not just on the good at their best, 
but even on us and our worst. There is no one who has had more a moment of desperation and despair and shame than Jacob in chapter 28. And yet, in that moment, Jesus says, just like I was with Jacob, Nathaniel, so you'll see that I'm with you. You delighted and believed because I saw you and I said, hey, there's no deceit in you. Things are going well. This is a good filter for you. Like, I love you when you're at your best, and you believe then. But there's going to be a day when you're going to see that I'm going to love you at your worst. When you'll see the heavens open and angels ascend and descend, I think here he's talking about the cross, and I'm going to go take on your sins on the cross on myself. Jesus is saying, I love you not just, and I know you not just at your best and delight in you then, but I know you at your worst and I love you then, even to the point of dying for your sins. Nathaniel, do you feel like you're known and loved now when you're good? Oh, but I know you and I love you when you aren't. These needs that, that Nathaniel references, that, that Andrew and John uh, that they model the need to be included and invited in, the need of Simon to be known and sent on mission with a new name and new identity, the need that Nathaniel has uh, to be seen and loved. All those are human needs. Those are ones that we bring to God as well. I wonder for you, as we sort of wrap up today, where do you see your needs and your longings? What are you longing for from Jesus? Is it this need to be, to dwell with him, to be included, to be invited in? Because if it is, he calls to you to come to him. He knocks at the door and asks for you to invite him in. Is it the need to be sent on mission? Know that he believes in you and cares for you, not because of what you can do, but because of what he can do through you. Is it the need to be known and loved? Because if it is, he knows you, he does know you, and he showed how much he loves you by going to the cross for your, for your sake. What are you longing for? What are you looking for from Jesus? Um, we're going to, in a minute, um, Justin's going to come up here and we're going to sing an, an old song, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I asked him if he'd lead us this in the song before communion, because as we take communion, I want us to be reminded that our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the one who, uh, who knows us, who delights in us, who loves us, not because of what we've done, but because of his love for us and because of his willingness to go to the cross for our benefit. So let's close our time in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you have called each of us to follow you. We want to come and see, just like these first disciples did, um, we want to come and see what it means to know you. As your followers, we want to open our lives to your direction and correction. We don't want to haughtily or cynically think that, that we've seen it all or know it all, that, um, that we can be in charge. Instead, we want to have a, a sense of wonder and awe that's always growing as we continue to learn more about what it means to know you. Help us to always have a sense of profound gratitude for the goodness of the gospel and keep our eyes on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.